With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's, where the crew is on your team. Grab your shopping cart, make a quick snap, and move out of the pocket. Run an option to the demo station. Make an end around to the snacks, then find an eligible receiver to take you to the end zone. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by Stuart Mandel. We are officially in the off-season, Stu. We're a week out of the national title game. Both of you are, both of us are back in our comfortable habitats in California, be at different parts of the state. I think we should start on a kind of a somber note, since uh, we had some sad news in the world of, of sports, especially that hits close to home in college football, a true icon passed away over the weekend the great keith jackson let me ask you i mean is there any more iconic figure for you when it comes to broadcasting than keith jackson no absolutely not but in particular how closely intertwined he was with college football you know when i was reading the various stories it was actually pretty amazing to to read that he called everything from baseball playoffs to monday night football um, all these things, some of them which I'm sure I heard at the time, but to me, he was always the voice of college football, more so than I think, you know, I mean, there are a lot of great people calling college football today, but for a younger person, it would be hard to describe how one person could stand out so far above the others, how when Keith Jackson was calling a game, that meant it was the big game. Yeah, I thought on your own site, John Walters, our friend, your media critic for the athletic for the all-american did a really good job and i don't know if the right term is colloquialism but because college football had such a provincial aspect to it and i thought keith jackson you know that role of being like kind of tour guide from wherever you seem to be tuning in from your own remote outpost to wherever that outpost was i thought hit close to home in a way more than let's say you know i mean i think we both grew up on on brent musburger's you know, NFL today, you're looking live and it could be, you know, Fulton County Stadium or somewhere, you know, in Atlanta or somewhere mm-hmm. in, in Wisconsin. But with college towns, it's, it's a lot different because a lot of them are smaller. And I thought there's just a very regional aspect of the sport. And he really sold it. I mean, just because I think it felt very authentic. Yeah, there was a clip I, I tweeted out from the intro that they did to the Ohio State Miami BCS title game that he narrates and it includes a phrase that he used to say every time he did an Ohio state game, he would talk about the horseshoe and he referred to it as down on the Olentangy, the Olentangy river. Like just a little phrase like that is just, it, 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 it's makes it unique. It makes you feel like you said, like if you're somebody from any other part of the country, that's never been to Ohio state may never go to Ohio state. You do know that the stadium is down on a river on the Olentangy. 
saying this with respect, do you think he is, whether subconsciously or consciously, imitated by many of the people who are calling calling football, especially now? I don't think so. I feel like that may have been the case in a previous generation, that there were a lot of announcers that kind of sort of sounded like Keith Jackson. I don't think you can replicate it. It's where he was from. It's the... It's almost from another... I mean, I really feel like his broadcasting style is from another era. We talked about this actually when Brent Musburger retired. You just don't hear a lot of announcers like that today that... Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of announcers who say they're very polished. There are not a lot of announcers whose whose voice alone can carry a broadcast. No, I think, and, you know, one of those things where it's like, okay, it sounds like a big event when they're there. I think that is a, that's just a rare quality some guys have. You know, it's not to say that they're as good as Keith Jackson. And there's a couple of people I'm thinking of, you know, who we're friends with. And I don't, I don't know if it's fair to even throw them in in this discussion, you know, just because I don't want people to think we're we're saying they're they're you know as good as Keith Jackson was or on that level at this point. But they're you know there is a rare quality if you can make a game sound big. I had a, I really can't say I knew Keith Jackson. I didn't have you know any interaction with him other than this one. It was probably I don't know if it was ten years ago now. It's probably about about eight years ago. It was when the Pac-12 network was launching and they were doing these like kind of retrospectives and they were lining up media people. You know, they would have you booked for a studio for like an hour and you'd come in and they would ask you, you know, about 20 things or games. And so I go out to uh, somewhere in the in the valley in Southern California and I'm there waiting. And then all of a sudden, you know, as we're about to start taping, Keith Jackson kind of rolls in and I was like whoa you know because we're in like a hotel it's just like it's a it was just kind of a very nondescript kind of setting and he was like oh I'm early and I was like um wow that's Keith Jackson and, and I'm thinking you know what why don't you go in front of me you know a I, I felt weird making Keith Jackson wait and b I thought it'd be a lot more interesting to hear his comments than him hear mine when in truth a lot of the games I was going to be talking about Short of like like the Matt Leinart USC days, sometimes they schedule you for stuff. I honestly don't remember. You know, I saw highlights of O.J. Simpson at USC or some of those things. But most of the stuff, Keith Jackson's exactly who you want to hear from, whereas, you know, a guy in his 40s in that age, you know, is not who you want to hear from. So that was a cool experience for me just to kind of to listen to him tell those stories and just kind of really just kind of swing from his heels and, and listen to all that stuff. And he... He seemed just as sharp and as lucid at that point as he did when he was calling games. Bruce, let's take a moment from the podcast to introduce a new sponsor, and that is ZipRecruiter. Well, Stu, like anything is important, as we all know, since a big chunk of our fan base are big fans of recruiting, and we know how critical that is, the lifeblood for any college football program, as evidenced by our uh, latest national title team. Obviously, Nick Saban knows a lot about recruiting because we saw a true freshman all over the field making plays last Monday night. So let's get into a little bit what about what ZipRecruiter can do for our listeners. Indeed, and a fresh new year has begun, and if you're setting new goals for your business, it's extremely difficult to reach them without the right people on your team. And ZipRecruiter has transformed how you go about finding them. 
in need of great talent for your business but short on time, you don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools. You just need smarter tools. Well, what ZipRecruiter does is they post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. They can even review every application to identify the top candidates so you never miss a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. Well, no wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B, as in the audible Stu and Bruce. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B. Go try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B. So I never, I never had any personal interactions with him, but I worked very briefly at ABC when I graduated from college, as you know. It was the 1998 football season, and that was the year that he originally retired. So that whole season was a tribute to Keith Jackson, and, and it was a really big deal, obviously, if you were working on the um, college football side of ABC. He then ended up deciding to stay on, but mostly his biggest pro- complaint, I think, at that point was the travel so they let they agreed to have him stay on, but no longer be the number one game, no matter where it was. He mostly stayed to the West Coast. And then I remember kind of what you're just describing. I remember walking through the media hotel at the Rose Bowl in 2005, and you know every year at the national championship game, they still ESPN still does this. They have the people who are calling the game do either a press conference or media. You know the reporters want to interview them, and he was coming. He was like carrying his briefcase. He was coming over to do that. And I passed by him. And little did we know at the time that that would end up being his last game, the Vince Young Rose Bowl. He got on himself pretty hard because he felt like he was making a lot of mistakes toward the end of his career. And I do remember at the time, like now it seems really cool that he was the voice of that great game. But at the time, people complained that the person calling the, you know, the national championship game was getting some names wrong and whatnot, but I don't know. I went down a pretty deep YouTube rabbit hole on Saturday morning watching some old highlights that he called. Uh, For me personally, he'll always be the voice of the uh, Northwestern um, Rose Bowl that I, and obviously I was there. I didn't hear it in real time, but I watched it many times after that. um, Nobody, I mean, that's what I, I don't know about you, but that's what I associated with him most. He always called the Rose Bowl. Well, yeah, and I think the whole, you know, the granddaddy of them all and everything, there was a uh, there was a gravitas to it. And I think that that's part of the tradition when when everyone gets kind of a little frustrated with college football people for maybe beholden to the tradition. I think part of what they see is the is Keith Jackson's, you know, fingerprints on it to some degree. And I yeah. think that's where the reverence for it is. I watched the game broadcast just the other day of the uh, Alabama Georgia game and there's nothing. I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with Chris Fowler's call of it, or Kirk Herbstreit, or anybody involved with it. It was a perfectly well done broadcast. But there's nothing 
about either that event or the way it's presented that you would use the word tradition. I mean, it's very much a, it might very much feels like something that started four years ago, which it did. Every game Keith did probably at the time, at least felt like you were kind of tapping into a longstanding tradition, whether it was the campus that it was at or the, uh, the, the various traditions at that school, his voice was just so closely tied to it. Yeah, and look, I think that, uh, like you said, it's kind of unfair to compare anyone to him just because he was on a different level. You know, we're talking about a guy who did it for, for you know, generations and generations as opposed to, you know, we're talking about contemporaries here who are, who are still, you know, in the business of doing it. So Indeed. And I just think that, you know, it's a different time in the era to now. It's, I think it's hard to, to attain the level he was at. I mean, who knows what it would be like if, you know, you have some great broadcasting career happening in the age of social media where everybody picks apart every little thing. You know, I think it's rare to see somebody who's, you know, like across the boards that you see a broadcaster and they're trending and, you know, and it's for a good thing. You well, know, he also never happens. I mean, I, I, he started college football in 1966. So for a long period there, he was calling college football at a time when he may have been calling the only game that was on. Period. You know, there would be a national game of the week on ABC, and that was it. It's hard to distinguish yourself now when on a given Saturday there are, I don't know what the number is, but there's 130 teams and split that in two, and almost all of those games are on television somewhere. So it's just it's just the whole media landscape is much different. But at that time, he he was the voice of the sport. It was. It was it, I actually saw that news Saturday morning. I know he passed away Friday night. I saw that news Saturday morning like when I first went on my phone, which I hadn't done right away. And it just kind of like made me stop in my tracks. Mm. Well, there was also some other pretty big news in college football over the weekend. There was a vacancy, the last FBS head coaching vacancy that for was now. open for now. <laughs> um, Arizona hired Kevin someone. It was an interesting search. Uh, what do you make of the hire? I think it's a very good hire. Because, I mean, for one thing, that's who I would have hired if I was Arizona State. Certainly not Herm Edwards. I would have hired someone. And, yeah. uh, and now he's at the rival school. Chantel Jennings, our covers Pac-12 for the All-American, wrote about Khalil Tate and how much he might benefit from someone. Because, listen, he, there's no question things went south in College Station. And he had, they had every right to fire him. He had gotten stale. They were going 8-4 and four every year. But, I mean, this is still the guy who coached the quarterback who just threw the miracle touchdown pass in the NFL playoffs, Case Keenum, who co- who coached Johnny Manziel. He's bringing Noel Mazzoni with him, who coached Brett Hundley. I, I feel like Khalil Tate, who voiced an opinion on Twitter that he was not going to be very fond of the hire if they hired Kenny Amatololo to run the triple option, is going to be thrilled with this hire. Yeah, I mean, you'd think it would be a a really good fit. By the way, I had after the after the news comes out that that he is getting the job, that someone's getting the job. And as you said, Cole Tate was on social media, and a lot of his teammates on Arizona were also, you know, not looking, did not want Kenny Amatololo there. You know, the reaction was just kind of a, uh, I don't know, kind of a. I I think it at that point because from my reporting that really. Niamatolo and someone were the two finalists. And we had reported that uh, Niamatolo had pulled out his name out of consideration. But I think at that point he had known that it was kind of a, 
going to be an uphill battle, even if he got the job of w- when he walks into that situation. You know, it was just not a good situation. So I had reported, uh, I guess it was Sunday, that someone was getting the job. I got a text from a, a football coach out here. He said, does Khalil know he was running the triple from the gun? <laughs> basically saying, like, he may hate the triple option, but that's basically what he's doing from the shotgun. And I said, he probably doesn't, but I'm guessing that he saw that, you know, Navy only throws it like four or five times a game, and that was probably the bigger issue. I get the question, uh, you know, every now and then in the mailbag, why don't more teams run the triple option? You know, why doesn't... Um, uh, it's hard to recruit to. Yeah, pre-Scott Frost, people out, why doesn't Nebraska just go back to running the triple option? Why is Georgia Tech the only one? Well, that's exactly why. Kids, it has such a negative stigma as being associated entirely with the service academies and you don't pass. And, uh, and, and so, but he's right. The coach you talked to is right. A spread option, Rich Rodriguez type offense is based on the same exact principles as the, uh, as the triple option. And I also think he would adjust it. I don't think he's going to, he would go to a place like Arizona and say, we're going to pass the ball seven times a game. So that's a little unfair that, if if that is the reason he didn't get the job, that's a little unfair. Yeah, I mean, in, in someone's case, I think the challenges are, and we had uh, our TV crew had Arizona in the bowl game. He walks into a situation where I think he has a chance to win eight games right away, maybe even more than that. As you mentioned, Khalil Tate, he's probably going to be the best player in the Pac-12. Now, he was spectacular at times last year. He's also, by you know people inside the program's own admission, He's not a good practice player. He's got to get way better on that side of it in his preparation, which I think is going to be one of their bigger challenges. But they have a ton of freshmen and sophomores in that program who are pretty good, but they've got to get bigger and more physical. And I'll say this, and I feel pretty comfortable saying this, Kevin Summer will be the best uh, recruiter they've ever had working at, at Arizona. And this is a program that's never been to a Rose Bowl, you know, and they've had some really good players through the years there. But, you know, when I, I did a couple of their games, and you just see it eyeballing them on the sideline. I mean, they don't look like most other – they don't look like any other Pac-12 team physically. I mean, they're a smaller team, especially on defense. Now, the last year they've – you know, uh, two years ago, Rich Rod changed his, his defensive staff, brought in Marcel Yates and shook up and brought in some other recruiters on that side of the ball to address that. And I think, you know, you started to see it paying off a little bit. But that's where I think someone's really got his work cut out for him is to get this team to be a lot more bigger and a lot more physical because that's where they're they're quite honestly lacking. All right, so let's just play devil's advocate for here for a second. If you're somebody who is going to pan this higher, you might say, "Well, he couldn't he couldn't go better than eight and four without Johnny Manziel at uh, SEC school with all the resources in the world." Why do you think he'll do well at a at a school that's frankly one of the least supported football wise in its new in its current conference? Well, I would flip it and say, who do you look at in the Pac-12 South that is anything close to Alabama talent wise or LSU talent wise uh, or even what Ole Miss was? I mean, I see in the Pac-12 right now a lot of a lot of Arkansas's. I mean, quite honestly, you have. When he's taken over, you have USC that is going to be now moving on from Sam Darnold. I mean, this is probably about as vulnerable as USC's been. You have UCLA flipping the reset button. I think Chip Kelly will do well there. But, I mean, they just 
you know, barely made a bowl game. The aforementioned Herm Edwards hire that I think both of us think is going to be a disaster. I think Utah is still going to be Utah, and that's really strong and a solid program. And you have Colorado that's been, you know, has had one good year in the last, I don't know, 10. So it's not, he's not in the SEC West anymore. That's my thinking. I think that A&M, <coughs> you're seeing this now with the amount of money they're going to pay Jimbo Fisher, has very, very high expectations, extraordinary expectations, and ones that are very hard to meet in a division with, certainly with Alabama, but also with LSU and Auburn and others. Uh, Arizona's expectations are going to be much more modest. I mean, frankly, if Rich Rod could have built on the season where they went to the Pac-12 title game and got crushed by Mariota, if they had you know, not fallen right back down, he might have carried more favor there. Obviously, the scandal probably would have done him in regardless. So, you know, if, can, if let's put it this way. Kevin Sumlin got fired for going 8-4 and four every year at um, A&M. If he went 8-4 and four every year at Arizona with, like, an occasional spike to 9 or 10, I think he'd be doing just fine. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think it's perception here. Now, I mean, if you, what is his record compared to Dan Mullins, right? I mean, Dan Mullen, I think, averaged eight wins for the last five years. He gets the Florida job. Kevin Sumlin gets fired at Texas A&M. He did have that one great year where they went to number one. I feel like you need one of those. Yeah, but they didn't, yeah, but they didn't finish no, number one. No, but you need one of those where you – yeah, that was about as much excitement as there's ever been for Mississippi State football. I'm you just saying. I mean, like someone did have – it was the only top five finish in the last 50-plus years at A&M. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying he's going to lead them to their first Rose Bowl, but let's go to that. So they've never gone to a Rose Bowl. Give me the percent chance that in five years Kevin Sumlin gets Arizona to its first Rose Bowl. Hmm. I'm still going to put that. That's still going to be pretty low, I think. Under 30%? Yeah, under 30%. Because you've still got David Shaw. You've still got Chris Peterson uh, coming out of the other um, division. You've got Chip Kelly now in, in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether Clay Helton makes it long-term or not at USC, that's always going to be – they're always going to be a force to be reckoned with. I, I think he will have some really good seasons there. I don't know about Rose Bowl. Okay. You? I would put it at 40%. There, you heard it right there. 40% to the Rose Bowl. Of course, that question is a little complicated because what if it's one of the years that the Rose Bowl is hosting a semi, but they're still in the New Year Six? I don't know. Uh, Look, I think I, I think next year they would have actually a shot to win the Pac-12 South, a decent shot. They got a lot. They had, that was a very young team with a lot of talent on offense. They were pretty terrible on defense, but they had some freshmen who, yeah, freshman All-American type players that if they could develop under a new regime, they could be pretty good. I just don't know who you look at in the Pac-12 South and go, okay, that's a top 10 caliber team right now, right. top 15. I just don't see it. Other coaching news. So we had a question in our uh, mailbag, and I'm going to read it because it ties into the news we're about to talk about, from Andy in York, South Carolina. Bruce and Stu how much longer do you think Nick Saban will coach at Alabama, and do you see this run continuing for as long as he is there? So the news I'm referring to, Brian Dayball, the offensive coordinator who came in from the Patriots, was the offensive coordinator for the national championship this season, is off to the Buffalo Bills, gone after one season. They've got to hire a new offensive coordinator a year after he hired Dayball, who replaced Sark, who lasted one game after replacing Kiffin, who was there for a few years. I mean, 
one of the things that really doesn't get talked about with this dynasty is that it has not been a case where the coaching staff remains intact. It's been the exact opposite. I feel like he's always hiring new offensive coordinators. Defensive coordinator was Kirby Smart up until a couple years ago. So how did how does Saban re- respond to this? You know, and and does that play any role in your thinking? Will this turnover, constant turnover of offensive coordinators eventually catch up to him? No, I actually think part of him likes this because I think he knows that you have to constantly shake things up to keep keep things on edge and and reset the dynamic the way it needs to be so people don't get soft and don't get complacent. Uh, my hunch is he is going to promote from within and elevate Mike Loxley, who's the co-OC, to the offensive coordinator job You know, going forward. And Loxley, from what I understand, had a key role you know, with all the RPOs and some of the different things that Brian Dable, quite honestly, had to learn from, you know, getting into the college game after spending so much time in the NFL. And I think that adjustment, and we'll see what uh, what Saban does to fill the staff around. You know, he's already made a couple moves, but um, my hunch is that's what he's going to do is, is promote Loxley. Yeah, it's interesting how different the perception of this would have been if this news, I mean, this news <coughs> comes on the heels of a national title game where he was the offensive coordinator and they brought in the freshman quarterback off the bench and had all these freshmen. When I rewatched the game, I couldn't believe how many plays in the second half. All of the skill players, for the most part, were true freshmen except for um, Alvin Ridley. So this was kind of a showcase for Alabama's offense. But for the most part, I'm not sure anybody up until that point would have watched Alabama this season and been blown away by the Brian Dayball offense. So this, this seems like a less... This doesn't seem like a, a blow the way it felt like, given when when Kiffin and then Sark both left after Kiffin had indisputably changed that offense. Yeah, look, I mean, and and to piggyback on this, so it's as we're taping this is late Monday night, but Hugh Freeze, the old Ole Miss coach, was in Tuscaloosa and met with Nick Saban on Monday. Now, from my understanding, it's really not in directly involved with that OC vacancy, but it wouldn't shock me if he ended up there in some other capacity on the staff. You know, as, as I kind of tweeted about, one of, his old offense coordinator, Dan Werner, at Ole, at Ole Miss, actually was on the staff at Alabama for a year. And he just left as an analyst to go be the quarterback coach at South Carolina. Would, would uh, Saban be interested in hiring Freeze as an analyst in, or some capacity like that? I could see that. Oh, um, when, when, when the uh, news came out Saturday about Dayball, or I guess it was Sunday, that was the first thing that popped in my head. That, <coughs> we know Hugh Freeze is going to get back in college coaching. I thought he, it would take a year. He might need a year to let the stigma pass. But if there's any coach that could do it and just not worry about the blowback, it would be Saban. And and I can't imagine there's a coach who respects Hugh Freeze's offense more than Nick Saban. I mean, he 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 just tormented with him for three years. That they Ole Miss won the first two games, but even the third year, Alabama won. But he gave him a handful. Yeah, he put up 43 points on them. So. I could definitely see that, you know, being a fit there. Now, um, you know, we'll see if Freeze has any other options. I, there's some smaller uh, offensive coordinator jobs I could see, you know, maybe he being in the mix for. But, um, you know, if Nick Saban, is, as we know, has hired, uh, among others, Lane Kiffin, Steve Sarkeesian at, the, at, that, at times in their career where they, I don't know, where a lot of other guys I'm not sure would have been able to hire them. 
Yeah, but in this situation, Hugh Freeze ran a program that was, I was going to say convicted, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but that the NCAA found guilty of major recruiting violations and paying players. And and surely, if you coach at Alabama, you were more aware of that than the NCAA was because you're recruiting against them. So, to me, this is a lot different than overlooking, even overlooking Hugh Freeze's other extramarital issues or Lane Kiffin's controversial ways or whatever. Like, how do you get past that part? You're going to hire somebody onto your staff who who ran a program that was breaking NCAA rules. Well, I think the, I mean, the NCAA didn't come down on Freeze as hard as I think a lot of people expected them to, though. You know, he basically not on him a, personally, right? That's the yeah, that's my point. So I don't know. As a, as we said, if anyone would do it, I could see Nick Saban, you know, being hey, if my compliance people are comfortable with it, I'm going to do it. Yeah, if if he thinks it's going to help him win games. Hey, here's a little bit of breaking news across the ticker right as we're recording this. Washington grad transfer QB KJ Carter Samuels tells me it's from Barton Simmons that he's heading to UCLA as a grad transfer. Could that be Chip Kelly's quarterback next year? Maybe now I, I guess it's a three ter- three horse race with uh, you know Modster who played pretty well late in the year when Josh Rosen got hurt and Dorian Thompson Robinson who's a pretty hyped uh, incoming freshman from Las Vegas so I don't know I, I'm sure that uh, a lot of people are going to want to play in this system so you know he hasn't got a chance to play because he lost the battle basically to Jake Browning I guess it was three years ago right you know but he was pretty hyped out of high school. That's what I recall, and then and then it was Browning's show. So, um, you know, that's going to be a really interesting subplot to watch. I think UCLA has a lot more – there's a lot more work to be done there than just the quarterback, but everybody wants to know who's going to be running Chip Kelly's offense. We're going to get to some reader emails here, or listener emails here in a second, but first, real quick, guy, we're recording this the day of the NFL draft deadline. Not all of the decisions have come in, but most of them have at this point. Anything – Either get, that blew you away, either in terms of I can't believe that guy's leaving or I can't believe that guy's staying. Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, the latter, and I can't believe everybody is staying at Clemson. Uh, that's mine too. <laughs> you know, looking around, I mean, it's like you already have what should be like a preseason All-American defensive line that's going to be in Clemson, South Carolina. I mean, the one guy who was not a question mark was Dexter Lawrence because he couldn't leave because he was only a second-year sophomore. But everybody else, I was like, oh, those guys are pretty fringe top, fringe first-round picks. And they're all coming back in addition to like a bunch of five-star kids who were who were coming in. So uh, good luck moving the ball and, and, and trying to, trying to uh, complete passes against the Clemson Tigers in 2018. I, I'm curious as to when we look back on this team, you know, how many of these guys will end up as first-round picks who are on this roster in the defensive line? I bet it will be at least five, and it could be as many as, like, eight. I mean, it's insane. You've got – first of all, when I did the way-too-early top 25 that went up the morning after the game, I think I had Clemson third, and the only reason I didn't have them higher was, what well, was the biggest strength of that team this year? Defensive line. Oh, they could have – at that point, you thought, well – Christian Wilkins, to me, was a no-brainer. Of course, he's going to turn pro. And then Clellan Farrell could, too, and Austin Bryan could, too. None of them turn pro. They're all back. Dexter Lawrence will be a junior. Deion Kane, Kane on the other side of the ball, did turn pro. So did – oh, and you know what? Mitch Hyatt, their offensive lineman, came back. So everybody wants to stay at Clemson. 
should we just uh, skip the rest of the season and book the Alabama Clemson championship game here in Santa Clara next year? No, I wouldn't get. Uh, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves on this. I I know it is going to be a just a, I would say historic defensive line in terms of if everybody plays to their potential a year from now you could be you could have the starting four defensive linemen from a team all called in the first round some of them awfully high it's insane yeah i think what we're going to see is next year you know we had at one point this year it was like the year of the running back mm-hmm. uh, i think this will be the year of the defensive line and if you think about it i remember doing this story um, a couple of years ago, right before signing day, where I talked to a bunch, I don't know, it was like 30 or 40 coaches and say, who would you think would be the biggest impact player of all the freshmen? It was the year Rashawn Gary was like the clear number one in a lot of people's eyes. And I had some different coaches who thought, okay, it's going to be Dexter Lawrence. I had a handful of people thought it was going to be Ed Oliver, who obviously ended up at Houston. But, I mean, there are some real studs on the D-line who are only going to be like, you know, a lot of them are in that class. We're going to be third-year juniors. Nick Bosa's in that class. Is also in that class, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you got those three that you just mentioned will be juniors. You got the Clemson guys. Wait, you mentioned four: Rashawn Gary, Rashawn Gary, Dexter Lawrence, Ed Oliver, and Nick Bosa are all in that class. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it'll definitely be the year of defensive linemen in college football, to say the least. And if you're an NFL team. That, that that's an area of need frankly you might want to wait a year any other things that catch your eye a guy you're like wow i can't believe this kid left or anything like that i mean the, the the trend to me up until this past week was that everybody was turning pro there weren't a lot of guys staying it was mostly guys turning pro under the radar one that stayed that i think will be a key one into the national championship race miles mm-hmm. gaskin now, he's not a big running back but he's very He's very shifty. He's a, a really good player for Washington. I think Washington is going to is. I mean, I would feel. I don't know if I would if I were picking a playoff team right now on the West Coast. Um, sign me up for the Washington Huskies. Yeah, and you know, and conversely, USC got hit pretty hard by guys turning pro. Yeah, well, Darnold was the big one. I mean, you know, Darnold, I, I think that's, all their. You know, if you were to say who were the four best players on that team last year. Ronald Ronald Jones is definitely that would be that guy, yeah. And and don't you think the two defensive guys too? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. To me, it's they were they were some of their better players, but I think in terms of just the impact, it was like you know, honestly, where if I'm a USC fan, beside Darnold leaving, the, I think the biggest blow to them was for them seeing Dylan McCullough, their running back coach, go to the go to the Chiefs. Because I think for a lot of USC people, like they were like, that's our best assistant coach, or that's the one they seem to like the most. He had uh, he hadn't been there that long, but he was a guy that everybody really kind of was a big believer in. He did really well for Ronald Jones. I think they had seen his work when he was in the Big Ten, you know. So I think for USC fans, they're a little bit reeling at this point because of stuff like that. All right, let's get to the mailbag. You can send your emails to the Audible Pod at gmail.com we got nothing but time in the off season to answer your emails and this is gonna be one of those interesting ones where bruce hasn't seen any of them so i get to just fire them off at him as if he's not mm-hmm. you know slow as, as if the having a massive cold is not hard enough and and you know, now you gotta react on your feet you ready let's go all right lucas branson hey Stu and bruce is josh jackson the answer for virginia tech to get back to the national championship, or at least to the playoff. 
He showed really good signs early in the season, throwing for 16 touchdowns in the first seven games, but only four in the last six games with a heavily declining completion percentage. With a highly touted QBs waiting in the wings, such as Hendon Hooker and Elite 11 standout Quincy Patterson, I'm not sure he's got the it. Fa- oh, this question started out like so excited about Josh Jackson, and by the end, he's ready to bench him for Quincy well, Patterson. I feel bad about answering this question because I spent like a half hour talking to Josh Jackson's uncle in the in the uh, in the in the uh, media hospitality room the other night. So, you want to say who that is for people who don't know? Yes, I I should. And it's David Jones, who's like kind of the 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 dean of the Penn State beat. I don't know. I, I mean, I thought he played really well in the games I saw him, and I think Justin Fuente does a really nice job of bringing him along, but I think it's a good thing. I, I, I've seen Quincy Patterson. I've not seen the other guy. I mean, Quincy Patterson, by the way, is the most guy who looks like he's 34 years old of anybody probably coming into college. I mean, he's like a muscled-up, big, pretty mature, pretty you know, he's like an intelligent kid. We did I, a big I, feature I on I, him on the All-American leading up to the December signing period. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's physically impressive. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see if he can push. You know, I think that what's they got to keep doing is developing skill guys around them. You know, for so long I felt like Virginia Tech had a really good running game. You'd o- it was almost like interchangeable. There would be always a good running back there, maybe an under the radar guy. I feel like that tailed off a little bit in the last couple of years or so, and I think that needs to come back. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I think that. Um... He's he's throwing out big goals there, and I don't blame him. But for Virginia Tech to get to that level, it's going to take more than Josh Jackson. I feel like they've been missing. They still have a really good defense. In fact, they could have a really good defensive line next year. But they have been missing the big-time playmakers that you used to see in an earlier era. So, But, hey, Fuente is a great offensive coach, and I have a lot of faith in him to get it done. But if, if you're looking at the ACC, you know, kind of the early look at it next year, Obviously, Clemson will be the favorite, but even in the other division, I mean, Miami won that division this year with a very young team. I would think you'd expect them to be right in the mix for next year. Yeah, I would think Miami will be better next year than they were this year. Right. So doesn't mean Virginia Tech couldn't be a lot better, too, but I don't know. Yeah, especially I, when you're playing with a retro freshman quarterback, no doubt. Well, he's going to have to take a, you know, continue to take a step, and I think it's in real, reality, I mean— I think that's kind of what you'd expect from a freshman quarterback. There would be a lot of inconsistency. And, you know, he started out the year on a real strong, you know, his national TV, played well against West Virginia. And I think he had his moments, but I think consistency, it's not a stretch to expect him to be inconsistent. Brian Smith, hey, Stu and Bruce, would Auburn have been better off declining an invite to the SEC championship game? They were ranked number two going into the weekend, then lost a rematch to Georgia. The two teams they beat in their last three regular season games, ended up playing in the national championship game while they were relegated to the Peach Bowl and handed a humiliating loss to UCF. That's an extreme scenario, of course, but I don't like the idea that making a championship game and losing is worse than not making it at all. You know, that assumes that if they basically flipped roles with Alabama, and I know that that's been brought up, Alabama got a pass, didn't have to play an extra game, still made the playoff and then won the national title. I mean, Auburn had two losses, so they may have been number two going into that weekend, but as we know, the committee can change that on a dime. And if they hadn't played in the SEC championship, would they have really made it in over a bunch of one-loss teams? Do you think that 
it's the two loss thing, or do you think some of that also would be the Saban Alabama factor of getting the benefit of the doubt? There's no question Saban and Alabama get the benefit of the doubt <coughs> on every turn. I mean, you know, people have brought this up to diminish the five national championships. I think that's not fair because it's very, very hard to win the national championship. But two of those, one of them was this year, they didn't win their division. In 2011, they didn't win their division. In 2012, I remember they lost to Manziel, and it thought all hope was lost. And then the very next week, um, the two undefeated teams ahead of them both lost, and then they're right back in the top two. Like there has been a lot of that in this Alabama run. That being said, you still got to get into the to the playoff or into the national championship and win the games. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think uh, I don't think Auburn would have been given that benefit of the doubt. For one thing, I think. It's, frankly, I had to do a double take to remember that, oh, yeah, they really were ranked number two uh, coming off the Iron Bowl. I think that might have been some the committee getting a little caught up in the excitement of it because at the end of the day, they were that level of a team for about a month. I don't think anybody thought they were a playoff caliber team in September and October. Fair enough. All right, this one is definitely up your alley. Bruce and Stu, this is from James B., by the time you're reading this, Ed Ogeron has likely promoted Steve Enzminger to offensive coordinator, and that he has. As you can see with this poll on dandydon.com, that's a that's a old-time LSU fan site, probably dates to the beginning of the internet. Nearly two-thirds of LSU fans are not happy with this promotion. Count me among them. I bring this up because LSU's 2018 schedule is a gauntlet. Using Stu's way-too-early top 25 poll, we play five teams ranked inside the top 15, not to mention three of them as conference road games, among them being Dan Mullins, Florida. Stu, I know you have us ranked as 19th entering next year, and there's obviously reasons to get excited about this 2018 team. However, with an underwhelming hired offensive coordinator and so many starting roles to replace, is it plausible LSU could finish with a very underwhelming record? It's plausible. I mean, I actually think this their team is probably built for 2019. They're probably a year away, but... You know, my guess is they should be better on defense in 2000 and this year, this coming year, than they were in 2017. I mean, yeah, they're losing Arden Key, but Arden Key was barely himself for most of the year. Their best defensive back, Reedy Williams, was a freshman who's back. Their defensive line will be much improved from where it was. They just didn't have a ton of depth in a lot of key places. The guy, the, the area where I think they're in the biggest question mark is the running backs. Because Darius Geis and Daryl Williams, who was a really good running back behind Geis, they're both gone. I don't know. You know, they signed two freshmen. We'll see what's going to happen there. I think they'll be fine at receiver. I know the people around the program are pretty confident in the young quarterback, especially Miles Brennan. But you know, there's I don't know what to what what's going to be in terms of uh, you know Steve Ensminger. Ogeron liked what he did last season. You know, when he was the interim. But at the same time, I think he felt like he needed to make a splash higher on the offensive coordinator. That didn't work. And so he went with somebody he's comfortable with. And, you know, will that be enough? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that is a if I'm an LSU fan, you know, I'm I'm probably a little uneasy about it, you know, and I don't know who the offensive coordinator they would have liked to have seen him go get. I mean, I if you had lost Dave Aranda, that would have been to me a much bigger concern. But at the same time, you know, we'll see. Because Steve Ensminger has been an offense coordinator a bunch of places. He's had some good results, and towards the end of his time as an offense coordinator, not some not so good results. So the jury's clearly out. 
I think that there's this perception of dysfunction at LSU going back to 2015 when Joe Oliva almost fired Les Miles but didn't, and then he came back, and then he got fired after four games or five games, whatever it was. And so, I mean, Ed Ogeron, that was a whole lot of trouble he went through to go out, uh, get Matt Canada, pay him a lot of money, go through the season. Now they have to reach this expensive settlement to get rid of him, only to end up back where they started with Ensminger. I mean, the fact of the matter is he did a really good job taking over that team when he did uh, two years ago. Danny Etling as the quarterback. They were scoring a lot of points by the end of the year, and maybe he should have just stuck with him. And then this wouldn't seem so dysfunctional. But as it is, yeah, I could see why they would want a, a bigger name to come in there. Um, I don't know. I, I'd say give it a chance. But I do get why people are uh, skeptical. Queasy. Queasy. All right. We have uh, more questions in the that we had pulled up. But after hearing your voice and your coughing and your sneezing, I am going to – give you the rest of the night off. I think that's, right, I I think that's the that. merciful thing to do at this point. Send us your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll try to make up for it next week. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the audible, please subscribe on Apple podcasts, Google play stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to the all American podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel. And subscribe to The All-American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash all-americans.